Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, June Grovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. Although today we have something a bit different. We'll be answering your questions. We're taping at our usual time this week on Thursday, August 23rd at 10.30 a.m. As always, news can happen fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this, although this week I hope not. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Margot Sanger-Katz of the New York Times. Good morning. Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hello, everybody. And Anna Edney of Bloomberg News. Hello. So, first of all, thank you all who wrote or messaged for your most excellent questions. We couldn't use them all, but I'm holding on to the rest for when we do this again, and we will do this again. Here's how we're going to do this. I'm going to read the questions, and we all get a chance to answer them briefly, please, though some may take a bit to explain. At the end of the show, as usual, we will do our extra credits. So, let's dig in. Here's question one. It's from Rachel Doherty of Clovis, California. She wants to know why dental insurance isn't part of medical insurance. Joanne, you want to take a shot at this? Well, when I think um, in Medicare was really sort of an acute hospital-focused program originally, and, it, medi- and, and dental insurance wasn't really common before, and Medicaid, Medicare was models and part of the existing uh, commercial insurance. Um, I, I also, it's expensive. I mean, it's not as expensive then as it is now, but, you know, they were trying to keep things under a certain dollar amount and that added cost. I also think that, you know, 50, 60 years ago, we didn't, we thought of teeth as more of a cosmetic issue and we now think of it as oral health, but we still don't cover it very well. Kids get covered in, in Medicaid and kids get covered in the ACA, but adults really have gaps. Kids dental care. Now, yeah. Yeah. But, the, but the adults don't. There's still a lot of gaps. But I mean, traditionally, this just, I mean. It's money. Yeah. I mean, I mean yeah. At, at the time, that's what the insurance packages didn't by and large cover dental care, and so neither did. It's still of, an add-on. I mean, you have a yeah. dent. Most of us have a separate yeah. dental program. I feel like it reflects this strange history where, uh, you know, dentists are not trained at tra- traditional medical schools. They go to separate dental schools. Teeth school. Uh, you know, if you go to the emergency <laughs> room, if you have a problem with any part of your body besides your teeth, you probably will get treated for it. If you have a problem with your teeth, which is a very common reason why people go to emergency rooms, they will essentially, you know, give you an antibiotic and refer you to a dentist. It's this weird history where dental medicine actually sort of came up as a separate branch of medicine from the whole rest of the body, and it has stayed separate in all of these different institutions, and insurance is one reflection of that. A lot of that, there was something I covered as a local reporter long, long ago. I did a story on the local prison barber um, who was getting an award. And in looking into kind of the history of um, barbers, I I found out that they were actually dentists, um, essentially. So it wasn't, like you said, the medical profession. It was more done. And the barbershop was sort of an add-on there as, you know, get a shave and get the tooth pulled that's been bothering you or something along those lines. So you see the red and white stripe, and that was sort of more for the um, the rags soaked in blood for doing the dental work. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> so while we are talking about things that are covered and not, we have two Medicaid questions, both 
both also about historical things. The first is from Cameron Gilbard from Phoenix, Arizona. She wants to know why children are defined as under the age of 21 rather than 18 in Medicare's EPSTD program. Um, first of all, Medicaid, Medicaid's EPSDD program stands for Early and Periodic Screening, Diagnosis, and Treatment. It is a program that was actually started in 1967, two years after uh, Medicaid, to basically um, help kids get care and help kids get particularly preventive care. We were just talking about dental care. Um, this actually, the EPSDD program came about because there was a famous 1962 study that found that half of the men drafted for the military that year could not serve because of medical problems, and most of them were medical problems that could have been prevented if they had gotten uh, appropriate medical care, preventive care, when they were much younger. And that was literally the origin of EPSDT. The, actually, the 21 rather than 18 is because that was actually the uh, end age of welfare at the time. Uh, the the Aid to Families with Dependent Children program, um, uh, kids were eligible up to age 21. That was later lowered to, to uh, 18. But in uh, in Medicaid, actually, it, I think now it goes to 19 in general. But that, that was the origin of why it was 21. Um, so that's that question. The second question is from Ariel Levin Becker from Cheshire, Connecticut. She also has a historical coverage question. Why does Medicaid cover long-term care as opposed to Medicare or even a separate form of coverage? Joanne, you've looked at this a lot. Well, um, this is a multi-part answer. I'm going to try to get it through quickly. Um, as I mentioned a minute ago, Medicare was really pretty hospital-focused, acute care-focused. And that's really how people died in the 60s when Medicare was created. We didn't live as long, and we didn't have all these chronic diseases. Um, there wasn't as much dementia because people didn't live as long to get dementia. So there was less of a long-term care need, Indeed. less of a long-term care industry, which I'll come back to in a second. So it, it, was, it wasn't the focus of Medicare. And also remember, Medicare wasn't means-tested. Medicare was for everybody. To the extent that we were helping people pay for long-term care at that point, we were only doing it for poor people, which is true today. There was actually a precursor to Medicaid. There was a much smaller, much more limited, but it looks like Medicaid. It was a state federal program. It did help poor elderly people. It helped blind people. There was a small long-term care component for that. So when that, when we went from that to what we now know as Medicaid, um, nursing home care, long-term care, later home and community-based care, came into Medicaid. But the other thing is it was interesting. There really wasn't much of a nursing home industry at that point, and we didn't have a way of paying for it. Well, lo and behold, once we came up with a way of paying for it, at least paying for it for some people in 1965 in Medicaid, what do you know? We had a much bigger long-term care industry once we had money for it. Um, but also, Something that has been true in healthcare yeah, all along. Yes, either a vicious or, or virtuous cycle, depending on whether you're writing the check or getting it. Um, and the other thing is, you know, our demographics have changed. If you were 65 years old in 1965 when Medicare and Medicaid were passed, you had actually been born in 1900, and our life expectancy for a white male in 1900 was, was 47. So not, we, didn't, we didn't live as long. Um, if you were 65 in 1965, you, you did have a life expectancy to live quite a bit longer. Our families were different, right? We, we did more home care. Uh, so it's multiple reasons, but the basic reasons we actually sort of had a little bit of a program um, in, in Medicaid's uh, antecedent, and it, it stayed there. And we still haven't solved it. It is the unfixed entitlement. It is the unfixed uh, fam uh, family burden. I mean, Medicaid, the only pay you have to spend down all your money before you get onto Medicaid. It's it, Nobody. We tried to tackle a little tiny bit of it in the Class Act and the Affordable Care Act, and you know that 
got repealed immediately. We don't know how to do this yet. All right. Well, next topic, uh, single-payer health care. We also have two questions. Um, first, Bill Yakel of Sacramento, California, wants to know, quote, what happens to the shareholders in health insurance companies if single-payer is enacted? Does the government buy their shares? What happens if a single state, such as New York, enacts single-payer that results in less income to the health insurance company? So this is a, a good question about sort of the 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 potential pitfalls in the transition. Does anybody, has anybody even looked at what might happen to, to yeah. some of the, the private industry? I mean, so we, this is totally a political choice. So there's nothing inherent in single payer that says a single thing about the shareholders of healthcare industry companies. Um, but in general, I would say the people who are writing these bills, who are making these political choices, are not remotely concerned about this problem. Um, I've looked at a lot of these proposals, both white papers and legislation that's come you know, before Congress and before states. And this is just not something that you see. There is a related thing that you do see in some of these bills. And I believe the Sanders single-payer bill includes this, which is a concern not about the shareholders of for-profit companies in the healthcare industry that will take a haircut, but a concern about the employees employees of the health insurance industry that will essentially be put out of business. So some of these bills do create some kind of transition for those people, whether it's money or job training or other kinds of things. I think there's a recognition that if you're going to put a whole industry out of business, that's going to hurt not just the owners of that company, but also a lot of just ordinary working people who are, you know, insurance claims adjusters or or secretaries or do other things at those companies. But I would say in general, if you're a shareholder of a health insurer or a pharmaceutical company or a for-profit hospital company and we impose single payer and those companies become less profitable, probably that's just going to come out of your pocket. Um, Also along those lines, David Henderson of Raleigh, North Carolina, has a question about Medicare for All. He said, in response to Democratic Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard of Hawaii tweeting support for Medicare All, quote, I read the replies and easily more than half the ones arguing against it were saying Medicare is bankrupt. Uh, What's the origin of this narrative? Anna. (laughs) So this uh, typically comes from every about every spring. You'll see a report. Um, at least us health wonks will see a report come out from Social Security wonks too. Right, right that's true. <laughs> Social Security wonks as well um, from the Medicare um, trustees and Medicare and Social Security trustees, and they um, they're the ones who are supposed to look at this trust fund. It's basically the fund that you know it's what funds Medicare and Social Security. So these are. Um, the Treasury Secretary, the uh, Health and Human Services Secretary, Labor, and and so and um, the Social Security Administration. So they take a look and at the projections for how much you know money is left. When will these? When will this fund be exhausted? Um, and so this year um, in June, the report said it would be exhausted in 2026, um, and that's three years earlier than was last projected the year before. Um, and this always this is a number that, that fluctuates on many things, on legislation and policy that's being implemented. So last year they said, or in June they said, um, it was in part three years earlier because of the tax law. So essentially the government would be collecting less in income taxes um, than, it, than it had been before. And, and also that there had been lower wages and so there would be lower payroll taxes as well. And then at the same time, um, 
hospitals because the um, Republicans had repealed the individual mandate in Obamacare. Hospitals were going to have a higher level of uncompensated care, meaning they'd be looking to Medicare to make up for some of that. And so Medicare would probably be paying higher fees to hospitals as well. And so that all things like that all kind of go into this projection that you see every year, um, you know, in, in 2015. So this was kind of after Obamacare was implemented and, and really getting underway. Um, the number was 2030. And so, you know, you can see kind of a difference like that. And it goes up a year, um, down a year or a couple years, kind of every single every single time this report comes out. And this is Medicare uh, Part A. This that's is what the I was trust just fund. Say. I mean, everything Anna said is right, but it's important that people understand that Medicare has a, B, C, and D. And, but the um, main parts are A and B. Right. And A is it basically, simply stated, it's mostly inpatient care. It's the hospital fund that pays for a few other things. But it's, you can think of it as paying the hospital bills. That is the part that comes out of this trust fund, which is you know, always going broke sooner or later. I was just curious last night. I looked up the history of the trust funds, and they didn't even have one the first few years of Medicare. They weren't. So then, then somebody said, oh, I guess we better figure out what this thing costs. And 1970 was the first trust fund report, at least the first one I found Googling. And at that point in 1970, it was about to go broke in 1972. So, you know, you've had um, immediate two, three, four years. You've had 10 or 15 years. When it gets close, and we've seen this happen Many times, Congress fixes it. They change the payroll tax. They come up with an inpatient patient system, pay, payment system. They um, the the big one was the Balanced Budget Act in '98. Changed a lot of things. Um, the the so it's fixable, but you do have to want to fix it, and you do have to have bipartisanship to fix it. And we do not have like a ton of bipartisanship now. But as con- will Congress let Medicare go broke? No. Will Congress? Do I know how Congress is going to fix it? No, but no, Medicare is not going. Yeah, and, and this actually, Medicare is not going broke more than it hasn't always been going broke. This is sort of the yeah, and this is the part that people don't understand because this was part of the original compromise that created Medicare and Medicaid in the first place. Is that the, the Medicare Part A, the hospital and their the Medicare small nursing home benefit are funded by the payroll tax, um, by the Medicare payroll tax, which is the Medicare part of the Social Security tax, and it can theoretically go broke if taxes aren't enough to cover the cost. Part B, which is all of the outpatient stuff and now sort of everything else, are funded by general revenue, so they can't go broke. Um, part B is there were there have been some efforts along the years to try and rein in the cost of Part B and put some caps on it, and it's it's never it means tested. Yeah, and yes, well, and people, yes, people with higher incomes do pay higher Part B premiums and higher Part D premiums for their drugs. But in general, the only part of Medicare that can go bankrupt is the Part A trust fund. And so that's what we're talking about. And when people talk about, you know, I've paid into Medicare all my life, that's what they're talking about. So there's a special payroll tax. You know, if you look at your paycheck, you'll see there's like a special line and that's for a Medicare payroll tax that goes into the trust fund. And then all of the hospital bills that Medicare has to pay come out of that money. So it's like a little bit of a fiction. It's like an accounting gimmick. It's a way of saying like, we're going to pretend that this portion of money in the federal budget uh, goes into Medicare and that this amount of Medicare spending comes out of this fund. Really, all the money is kind of mixed together in a giant uh, pool. And, <laughs> yeah, not a lot. <laughs> um, and, you know, 
there are other, as Julie said, there are other parts of Medicare that are just paid out of the general fund and no one is really concerned about the in and out. But I think the the fact that Medicare is perpetually going broke is a good reminder that even though it is true that people are paying into Medicare all of their lives, the amount of taxes that a typical person pays into Medicare during their working life does not come close to covering the total cost of care that Medicare provides to them. It's really a fraction. And the system sort of depends on there being a lot of other people who are paying in to help supplement your expenses when you need them. You're not there's not an individual account for you that you're putting money into and then get spent later. It's sort of everyone as, as their social duty pays some contribution to Medicare and then the assumption is that there will be enough money left over at the end so that when you get sick it will pay for your hospital bills. Yeah, the, the notion that you're prepaying your your Medicare is not actually It's not like true. you're putting money on an you know on a debit card. Right. But I mean the the fiscal problems are real and the demographic problems are real. It's not that they're not problems that Congress doesn't have to address. They do. But it's not suddenly going broke in a way that we haven't and experienced even in, even in 2026, uh, when the Medicare trustees say that the fund will be exhausted, even then Medicare is not broke in the way that we think of it because there still are a lot of us who pay these payroll taxes who are going to continue to pay into the system. Essentially what happens at that time is that there's no extra money in the pot. There's some coming in and then there are more bills going out than there are is money coming in. So that will be a problem for Medicare because it will only be able to pay a fraction of its bills. Although I think that the first year is like 75 percent. But yeah, it sort of takes a while for that to become a yeah. total crisis. All right. Well, moving on, um, we are going to talk about a podcast favorite, drug prices. Uh, we have Barry Labovich from Basking Ridge, New Jersey, wants to know about the interaction between payers, PBMs, and drug manufacturers, don't we all? He's particularly interested in how rebates and clawbacks work. We have talked about this before, but Anna, you're our drug price expert. Why don't you give us a very brief uh, summary? <laughs> so um, um, easy. Right. <laughs> Nine-part series, right? <laughs> so the, um, the pharmacy benefit managers are sort of what we call the middlemen, and they um, work on behalf of insurers or employers, and they negotiate with the drug companies to try and get um, a rebate. So the idea is the drug company sets a list price, and then they ne- try to negotiate off of this list price, and so they would get a rebate, kind of something they get after it's paid for, um, something they get back, sort of like sort of the opposite you, of a discount, right? Well, and, you know, I I think of this like when I buy, I I've, I feel like this happened in the past when you bought electronics. Often you like write in for this fifty dollar rebate that you mail away for. It's kind of like along those lines. Um, and so they, the problem has been, um, you know, these started getting a ton of attention. It, there was some attention back in 2011 um, with these rebates when CVS started excluding um, some drugs from its formulary about, you know, a formulary is the list of drugs that will cover. There were about 30 of those. And then really, I think it picked up in um, 2014, 2015, when you had these very high priced hepatitis C drugs. And so the the um, big pharmacy benefit managers came out and said, we're only going to cover one or the other. These were made by AbbVie and Gilead. And so, you know, they... And they, they cost gave like eighty thousand dollars for yeah, course of treatment. Yeah, it was eighty four thousand for a course of treatment. So Which at that point, we thought was a whole lot of money. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and now, now it seems not so bad. Um, and so they, you know, by doing that, they were able to pay far less than the eighty four thousand in the end. 
Um, but the problem is, is, as Joanne just alluded to, is now we have drug prices just getting higher and higher and you have these bigger um, price tags coming along with them. And so the, the thinking is that these rebates are keeping the drug prices high, essentially, because the pharmacy benefit managers can take the rebates and if they want, keep a portion of them. And some of them can go to the insurance plan to possibly bring down premiums. Um, and so that's sort of seen as a as a disincentive to the drug makers to bring the prices down. The clawbacks work where you know it's it's possible to go to the pharmacy and get a drug that you'll pay a copay for. Let's say it's a it's a specialty drug. It's on a a high tier on the formulary. You're paying forty dollars, you know, or something ninety dollars for your copay, but the drug doesn't cost that much to actually get. But you pay that amount, and so the pharmacy benefit manager claws back all of that that leftover money, the spread on that, and that's really been um, seen as unfair. And that's something that's actually been the the subject of some lawsuits recently. Not it's not clear yet how exactly they're going to play out, and whether there'll be sort of a trend there. Um, but there's there's definitely a movement to try to look at pharmacy benefit managers, maybe more as fiduciaries, more having to look. The Trump administration put out a blueprint to lower drug prices in May. And it said, you know, it suggested looking into that, which would mean that the pharmacy benefit managers have to put the customer's interests first, not their own, to get paid, essentially. Um, obviously, the, the industry does not like this idea at all. Well, we will we will have much more on drug prices as uh, as we go. Um, but now we have a question about something we don't talk about that much, but probably should telemedicine It's from Jay Kusha from Clinton, Mississippi. He wants to know basically why there isn't more, quote, progress and publicity on telehealth. Is there something I'm missing? Joanne, you've looked at telehealth a lot. Why isn't it catching on more? Well, it is catching on more, but it's it's uneven because we don't have great ways of paying for it. We should talk about what it is. <laughs> it's it's. It's. I mean, you can talk. It's. It's either just on the telephone or using a computer, or a Skype kind of secure thing, or or you know, office visits instead of in person visits. It has a huge amount of potential, particularly in rural areas, or if you don't have a specialty, or if you're homebound and can't get to the doctor easily. I mean, you're not going to do heart surgery by telemedicine, but you might do a follow up visit after your heart surgery. Doctor looks at you. You look at the doctor and chat a bit, and you're okay. Um, we we didn't have great ways of paying for it. We still don't have great ways of paying for it. But as the payment system in healthcare goes from fee-for-service to more, there are a whole lot of alternatives where um, kinds of lump funds and, and new formulas, it is beginning to, I'm not sure if it's a foothold or a toehold, but um, and some state Medicaid programs, some of the managed care Medicaid programs are using it. And they're using, you know, it's not, we're not sure it's a money saver. There was one study that came out that said it actually raises prices because, you know, it's, those if you're sort of sickish but you know not emergency department kind of sick and are you going to drag yourself to the doctor you're going to sleep through it well it might be easier just to skype the doctor because that's you know it's cold and wet outside and you're feeling lousy but so you know are there actually going to be more visits there are like the nursing homes if you pay for it they will come (laughs) right so there there are some questions about you know is it a money saver or not i don't i don't think we know i think it might be raised in cost in some places and not in others but you know, like with mental health um there's some uh, medicaid plans using it with mental health where we do have a shortage of providers and um you know and is is it we also don't know how well it's going to work you know is is that good enough do you really need to be 
in in the room with somebody or if being in the room with somebody is the, not possible because of where you live you know this may you know it, 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 i think it will i think you'll see more and more of it um the kaiser permanente system uses it a lot they or they've been using it for years they use it i think every doctor communicates um and they really had a culture shift and because they're paid they're not fee for service um They've been, I mean, I did a panel with them maybe four or five years ago, and I was surprised then how pervasive it is. They use it, you know, you're, you're worried about your kid, and you, you know, the pediatrician Skypes the kid and, you know, tells you, ah, I'm not looking so good, better come in or call me tomorrow. I think it's okay. Um, so they're using it for a lot of communication. All right. Well, speaking of things that may or may not save money, we have a wellness question. It's from Gustavo Corral from New York City. He points out that the ACA allows health plans to set aside up to 30 percent of health premiums as a reward or incentive to workers to part- for workers to participate in a variety of what's deemed healthy behaviors, everything from getting a health screening to losing weight or quitting tobacco. Quote, has this idea gone anywhere? He asks, is this just another part of the ACA that never got off the ground? Margot, I think you've written the most about uh, this among those yeah. of us at the table. <laughs> so I'm fascinated by this because I think that wellness seems like the sort of thing that's a win-win, which is so rare in healthcare. The idea that if you give people incentives to take better care of themselves, they will take better care of themselves and it will also lower the cost of their health care. And I think if that was true, it would be wonderful. Uh, so two things. One is that this has, in fact, caught on. It's become more and more popular among large employers. The Kaiser Family Foundation puts out a study every year where they look at health benefits sort of across the country. And what they say is that about more than half of large employers have some kind of wellness program. About 35 percent of small employers do. Not all of them are leveraging these kinds of financial incentives, but about half are. So let's think about maybe like a third of Uh, employer health plans, you have some money on the line uh, if you do or don't comply with various uh, wellness requirements. But there is a growing body of evidence uh, from a lot of different quarters that these programs essentially have not delivered what was promised, that they don't seem to actually be very good at improving people's health or lowering the health spending for them. And there is a lot of concern that they may turn out to be somewhat discriminatory against people who are at risk for illness, who have disabilities or other kinds of health problems, and that what they tend to do is just give heap rewards upon people who are already healthy and and already fun. practicing healthy behavior. So you know, like for example, at the New York Times, um, the not me because I'm in the union, but managers have there's a wellness program, and the wellness program gives you a benefit if you go running a couple of times a week. If you have like a fitness tracker and you achieve a certain number of steps, you get points, and you can use those points to buy gift cards or whatever, or to get a discount on your health insurance premium. And you know, it turns out that like the people who run a lot love it, right? They're getting a discount, and they feel I think they feel like it gives them an incentive, but they probably were going to do it anyway. And it's just like this like bonus affirmation, like, isn't this great? But if you're someone who is not a runner, you're actually paying more. Um, and I think it's very interesting because it sort of runs counter to a lot of the core values of the Affordable Care Act. I think the one of the main goals of the law was to make it so that health insurance costs the same whether you're healthy or sick, to try to make it so that people who have pre-existing health conditions get the same kind of access. And I think this pulls a little bit in the opposite direction. I'm sure there will continue to be more research on it, and maybe uh, some benefits will become more clear. There's some sense that really well-targeted programs, for example, programs that pay people to complete smoking cessation programs, seem to actually reduce uh, smoking in that population. So it may be that there are ways to do it that are really effective and that are valuable, but the kind of way that they've been broadly adopted, the sort of blunt wellness programs, it seems, are not doing 
as well as we had hoped. And yet there's a huge wellness industry. And there, but there's also privacy concerns. I mean, that that um, it's giving employers, um, you know, there's a debate about how much, who, who sees what, but there, there are concerns about uh, your personal health data and your personal health status. Yeah, because typically the way that employers it. run these programs is they don't, they're not run by the health insurance companies themselves. They tend to be run by outside vendors, third-party vendors, and those companies are not always subject to the same kinds of privacy requirements that healthcare providers and that health insurers are. And so there's been some good reporting actually here at Kaiser Health News and some other places about that data essentially being aggregated and sold with other kinds of commercial data like your you know internet browsing history, your voter file and other things. Yeah, and- you wonder why you get these ads on Facebook. <laughs> Well, those health reports, we get lots of weird ads because yeah, we Google true. weird things, right? <laughs> yes, Facebook seemed to think that I am pregnant. <laughs> Marco, do we have anything to <laughs> I am not pregnant. And we're trying to go through our, got a lot of questions in, but I, I have one tiny N of one being me because, like, these incentives can do really funny things to you, right? So I, Politico is in a building in Roslyn. Most of us work in a building in Roslyn where there's a gym, and we used to, they used to subsidize the gym. For those of us who worked in that building, and we paid $30 a month. And I used to go like three or four mornings a week. Then the gym changed management several times. It's now free, right? I don't have to pay anything. And I never go. So, <laughs> so there's some – I mean, I exercise, but not there. So, like, I can't quite – all I can do is, is – yes, it's just my idiosyncratic experience. But incentives aren't always – what you think. Giving the behavior that you think. So I can't even explain why I don't go when it's free. I mean, part of it is the bus school bus schedule, but that's we won't go into that. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> things change when your kid starts to drive. But the but no, it's not. There's still no reason I shouldn't be taking care of this totally free gym, and I don't. Although I think there, I mean, that, that's the classic I skin. I pay in to the, go somewhere else. That's the classic <laughs> skin in the game, though, which is that if you're paying for something, you're more likely to, yes, to right. use it. Yes, okay. But, although, anyway, all right, I think we have time to squeeze in two more, and they're related. Um, they're also on the How We Pay for Healthcare front. Um, uh, the first question is from Chris Cahill. He's a pediatric hospitalist in San Jose, California. He wants to know why the median pay for those who treat children, like him, is substantially lower from, than for those who treat adults. And more broadly, quote, who decides how much to pay any doctor for the procedures and medical work that she does? Meanwhile, Joe Felice from Liberty Lake, Washington, wants to know, quote, what is being discussed to address one of the obvious problems with U.S. health care costs, the fact that U.S. doctors get paid too much relative to those in other developed countries? So, which which is funny because when I sort of went to Google this, you know, sort of why do pediatricians get paid less than, than people who treat adults? Um, the, the, the related Google searches were, why do do- doctors in the U.S. get paid too much? So obviously, <laughs> Google thinks this is related too. <laughs> who, wants, who wants to start on, on physician pay inequities within and around the world? I don't know the answer to why, like, a pediatric cardiologist is paid less than an adult cardiologist. In some ways, these are really complicated, requiring more specialization because it's rarer and you need more training, and they tend to be complex cases. So I don't know, and I don't approve I think, of it. I think he's talking about <laughs> pediatric generalists. Pediatric, all right, well, yeah. pe- regular pediatricians are considered primary care, so primary care physicians make less money as a rule than specialists. On that, on the, on the things like a pediatric surgeon or a pediatric cardiologist, I don't know, and it doesn't make any sense to me. Well, I, I think, think part of the, the reason is actually has to do with 
who has what kinds of insurance in this country. So a very large percentage of American children are insured through the Medicaid program or the CHIP program. Uh, and then as you get older and you're, and you're kind of in your working age years, you're more likely to have employer insurance. And then when you reach 65, you're more likely to have Medicare. And so what happens is that if you're a doctor that treats a lot of kids, a very large percentage of your patients are going to pay you with Medicaid. Uh, this is not true in every case, but in general, Medicaid tends to pay doctors lower prices for the same services than other kinds of insurance. Commercial insurance tends to pay the best. Medicare tends to pay something somewhere in the middle. In and so I think what is happening, I mean, there are a couple of other reasons why pediatricians may make a little bit less, but I think that's the main reason is that pediatricians just have a lot of patients who have Medicaid. Medicaid is not a very generous payer. Whereas if you're, say, an adult cardiologist, you have a lot of Medicare patients. Medicare pays better than Medicaid. And if you are a specialist where you get a lot of working age people, like maybe you're an orthopedist, so you have some old people who need, uh, who, you know, break their hips, but you also have some kind of middle-aged people who need uh, hip and knee replacements, then you're really in the sweet spot where you're getting a lot of uh, commercial and some Medicare. You get paid a little bit more. Orthopedists make a lot of money. But the other thing is that, um, you know, the way that people get paid for medical care is based on, like, the stuff that you do. And pediatricians in general spend more time talking to their patients. It's more office visits. It's harder to communicate with kids and figure out what's going on with them. It's a little bit less procedural, I think, in general. Even in the subspecialties, I think it's a little bit less procedural than similar specialties for doctors, So it, for, for um, adult doctors. So it's a combination of things. There's also a panel, um, AMA-affiliated panel, that gives recommendations for what doctors should be paid, and it's dominated by specialists. Not quite as much as it was a few years ago, but it is still dominated by specialists. And that is one reason that specialists have been paid more than primary care doctors. As, as Margot said, I mean, it's, we talk a lot about the gap between primary care pay and, and specialty pay, but as Margot was getting at, it's not – this is a, a – it's the, the, what, what doctors would call proceduralists versus um, – it, it's doctors, doctors, doctors who do stuff. Exactly. It's procedures versus cognitive, which is sort right. of a mouthful of a phrase. But it's the doctor who does something to you, or with your permission, or the doctor <laughs> who talks to you maybe about why not to do that. And a, a really good example is feeding tubes in people with dementia. The A, a, a gastroenterologist, I looked it up, I mean, to the extent that this, whatever I found last night is accurate, or the day before, putting in a feeding tube, doctors make like between 1500 and like $2,500. And it's not a very long complicated procedure. They can do a whole bunch of them in one day. Boom, 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 boom. So they can make a lot of money by doing that. To sit down and talk to a family about why their elderly patient with relative with advanced dementia shouldn't have a feeding tube because there there's a lot of things in medicine that are ambiguous or we're not so sure about. But there's just a ton of research in the last 10 years saying this is this is not prolonged life doesn't make them live longer, and it doesn't make them have a better quality of life. We're plung- you know, we're still putting them in. We're putting in less, but we're putting them in. Um, the doctor, that same surgeon, the, the gastroenterologist who could make 1500 or $3,000 by putting it in, if he was going to sit down and have he or she, but in gastroenterology, more a he, um, was going to sit down and have an hour-long conversation with the family about sort of emotionally difficult and hard to understand why isn't this good for grandma? They'd make like 125 bucks or 200 bucks. So we're paying for all. So it's not only are some doctors getting paid more for things that we shouldn't really be doing so much of. It just we're paying for the wrong stuff. We're rewarding the wrong things. Not 100%. If you need brain surgery, you know, you need a well-compensated brain surgeon. But um, – you know, we don't pay for the time it takes to figure out what patients want and need. We don't value that. 
and we do pay our doctors way even the ones who we underpay compared to to what they do we do pay our, our doctors a lot more than most other developed countries do um again that's mostly because we don't have a really you know robust system of how we pay anybody in healthcare to wit we had just talked about drug prices well, um, and don't doctors say too a lot of that is sort of legal liability i mean they have huge insurance um for their own insurance against sort of malpractice um that they claim in the US is is worse than any other country and so they even, need to even when you more. look at all, so we pay more do- for everything. It's yeah, not right. just that we yeah. pay Doctors, more for hospitals. We pay more for more MRIs. Except I think maybe Japan, we pay more for everything. We pay more for our medicine, a lot more for our medicine. So. You could argue that we're paying doctors too much because European countries don't, but you could make that same case. I mean, healthcare in America costs more, be- partly because but also, we, I, we, chart, we just pay more. I would say, but also I, the, the end of that is that I don't, doctor pay isn't what's driving um, how much we pay for many factors, yeah. right? And it's probably not even that but big I think, a one. You know, like the dentistry thing, I think a lot of it is historical and cultural in this country relative to other countries. I think there are countries in Europe where being a doctor is kind of you're like a middle class professional, like being a school teacher, right? You know, you're seen as an expert. You work your job. You're treated with respect. But in the U.S., we have this history of a doctor as like this very elevated, high status, you know, high regard, high trust kind of profession that doctors are expected to make a lot of money and, you know, that feels appropriate. And, of course, it, it the fact that doctors in the U.S. make a lot of money relative to other kinds of professionals does influence who chooses to go into medicine versus other professions, you know. If we paid doctors less, that would change who would choose medicine relative to other careers. But if you were to ask me just off the top of my head outside of this particular room, you know, who's got that big salaries in America, I would say something in financial services. I wouldn't say doctors. It's not what it would come to my mind for But us that's not what <laughs> but people necessarily think. Right. I mean, you'd be correct. Right. Clearly. It's like if you think of like wacko in compensation, I think you know, hedge fund. I don't think my pediatrician, who I like a lot. <laughs> all right. Well, that is all the time we have for questions. Thank my you. My child's pediatrician. Right? Thank you, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, everyone who sent them. Now it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week. We think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org. Who wants to go first this week? Anna. Mine is from Vox by German Lopez. It's Republicans claimed Medicaid made the opioid epidemic worse. A new study proves them wrong. Um, So back in January, Senator Ron Johnson had said that um, Medicaid expansion, which happened under Obamacare um, for states that chose to do it, was giving people more access to opioids because their their healthcare was covered, and so more people were becoming addicted to opioids because of the expansion. And this was something that kind of took off, and that Republicans have been claiming. And so this study took a look at five states um, and found that they did not, you know, the the number of opioids dispensed in expansion states versus non-expansion states did not significantly differ. What was different was there was an increase in um, the addiction treatment um, that patients in, in expansion states um, were getting. There, there, were, there was because an increase <laughs> because they were covered. So they were getting buprenorphine and naloxone um, at an increased rate compared to the non-expansion states just sort of stayed steady. Joanne. Uh, there's a, a piece in the Virginian Pilot by an investigative reporter named Gary Harkey, and it's, it's really pretty stunning. It's called Jailed in Crisis, Horrific Deaths, Brutal Treatment, 
mental illness in America's jails. It's very disturbing to read. Um, there's video that's very disturbing to watch. But the, the you know we know that our jails are full of people with mental illness who may have only ended up there because there's no other place to treat them or their behavior became criminal because they weren't in treatment. And not only are they not getting great care in many of America's jails and prisons, they're dying. You know, They documented hundreds of deaths around the country. And these are not gentle into the night deaths. It's, it's a really good piece. Margo. I wanted to recommend a piece from my colleague, Aaron Carroll at the Upshot. He's also a uh, researcher and a, and a pediatrician, pediatrician. <laughs> yeah, at the University of Indiana, but He's sort of a comedian. <laughs> and, and he had a piece. Uh, there was a article in the Lancet last week looking at the sort of a big meta analysis of the risks of alcohol consumption across the world. Uh, that was trying to sort of look at what is a healthy level of alcohol consumption. What are the risks associated with alcohol consumption? And the big headline that came out of most of the articles that I read about that study when it came out was that there is no safe level of alcohol consumption. That the kind of traditional thinking that there was a benefit to us. Uh, moderate alcohol consumption is wrong and that all alcohol is dangerous and increases your risk of death. And so Aaron's article is called Study Causes Splash, but Why You Should Stay Calm on Alcohol's Risks. And uh, it's sort of a classic of what Aaron does, which is he looks past that kind of new nugget that seemed to get the attention of a lot of reporters um, and really looks at like, okay, well, like how risky is moderate drinking? How seriously should we all consider just avoiding alcohol altogether? And what he finds, and this is looking at the very same study, which, you know, you, there also are some reasons why you might uh, have some quibbles with the research on this, because a lot of nutritional research, it's all kind of observational, and there are lots of confounding factors that make it hard to tease out real effects. But he says, even if you kind of take this data at its word, the increased risk uh, to your health of drinking one or even two drinks a day is extremely small. So there is some risk. And if you want to avoid, you know, all risk of death, then, you know, don't drink alcohol and don't do lots of other things like cross the street. Um, but that the the sense that there's no safe level of alcohol is probably overstating the risk. And if you want to drink moderately occasionally um, because it gives you pleasure or you think it's delicious or it's part of your religious tradition, that you don't have to worry that you're suddenly going to kill over and die. Well, my story is also from The New York Times, and it's called Scotland to Provide Free Sanitary Products to Students by Ceylon Yiginsu. And the story is just what the headline says. Scotland is going to, starting next month, provide, quote, essential sanitary products, close quote, to all female students at every level, about 400,000 of them, at a cost of about $6.5 million a year U.S. The goal is to prevent girls and women from missing educational opportunities because they can't afford their monthly supplies. And this is a real problem. It has launched a big debate all around the U.K., not just in Scotland. Some people are arguing it should be extended to all low-income women. Uh, and uh, the argument that broke out when it was proposed that that be paid for with a tax on sanitary products themselves suggested that only women should pay for other women uh, caused a bit of a fight. It is an argument that's mostly not being had in the U.S., although there have been some arguments about taxes and the equity of those taxes. Um, but it probably will be soon, which is why I wanted to highlight it. So that is our show for this week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes. That helps other people find us, too. Also, as usual, you can email us your questions or comments. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Anna Edney. At Joanne Kennan. 
at Sanger Katz. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.